Hi, my name is Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and here's all the key news in the world of battery materials this month. Welcome to September's edition of Recharge, the podcast of Battery Materials Review. Thanks for tuning in this month. There have been lots of developments in the industry, with the lithium downturn claiming its first major scalp, with the demise of Elita resources. We discuss that in more detail in this month's issue, and also the ramifications for the industry as a whole. We've got two great interviews this month. First up, and with a lot of interest in the changes and developments in battery chemistry and in electric vehicles, we're delighted to have had the chance to chat with Adam Panayi from Motion. Adam is a consultant focusing on the automotive supply chain and also a specialist in raw materials, battery chemistry and costs. We have a far-reaching interview with him touching on all of those subjects. Having discussed some left-field battery materials in last month's podcast, we're back to plain vanilla lithium this month. And we're delighted to have had the chance to talk with Keith Phillips, CEO of ASX-listed Piedmont Lithium. His company's just published an updated scoping study on its US project, which shows the capacity for its integrated lithium hydroxide project to be at the bottom of the cost curve. Given the project's strategic positioning in the continental USA, there's a lot of interest in it at the moment. But before we get on to those, just a quick summary of the high points from this month's issue of Battery Materials Review. Our primary focus piece this month is on the 811 battery chemistry, and we ask whether it's really the answer to all of our problems. With a shortage of high-quality nickel supply, prices of over $25,000 per tonne needed to incentivize more supply, and the time it takes to build a large-scale nickel project, we believe it's quite likely that nickel prices could double or even triple from current levels. That will have significant implications for the economics of 811 versus 622 versus NCA battery chemistries. And we discuss those in more detail in the article. So let's move on to August raw materials news flow then. So Glencore's not the only company citing issues with its cobalt mines, and China molybdenum's Tenki Fungurumi mine is also reportedly operating at a loss. A number of cobalt financings have now fallen away, and the market certainly looks like it's going to be tighter next year following Glencore's production cut announcements. However, we're not so sanguine about the near term and think there's currently an oversupply of cobalt intermediates in the market. In nickel, it's also been fun and games with the accident at the Ramu mine in PNG. As one of the only mines in the world that's directly producing battery-grade products, any closure here would have serious implications for the battery markets. While the ban on exports of low-grade Indonesian nickel ore doesn't directly impact battery-grade nickel supply, it is relevant for the wider nickel market. In rare earths, we highlight that MP Materials, operator of the Mountain Pass Mine in California, is looking to introduce rare earth refining at the operation for the first time since 2015. If successful, it could produce up to 5,000 tonnes per year of NDPR. Moving on to exploration and development news. Among 11 resource and drilling updates this month, the one that stands out for us is ASX-listed Northern Minerals, which reported further very high-grade rare-earth drilling results from its Browns Range project in Western Australia, and the company has even more targets in the pipeline. In the development space, we flag metallurgical test results from three African hard-rock lithium project developers. Kodal Minerals, 
AVZ Minerals and Iron Ridge Resources reported recoveries on metallurgical test samples of between 66% and 75%. Given the issues that some of the Australian hard rock producers have had with hitting their targeted recoveries of north of 80%, we wonder if this isn't the beginning of a more conservative approach to production targets. If it is, we would suggest it's certainly more constructive for the industry. There are development reports from 15 companies this month, including a PEA for Gianni Metals' Cahill Manganese project in Botswana, an updated PEA for Piedmont Lithium's project in the US, a PFS for Infinity Lithium's San Jose project in Spain, and a DFS for Technology Metals Australia's Gabinintha Vanadium project in Western Australia. We discussed these in more detail in the review. We tracked 11 financings during the month, but on average, battery material financings are still down 24% year-on-year, year-to-date August, with lithium financings down 24% for the same period. Funds raised in the rare earth, nickel and graphite segments are actually up on a year-on-year basis. In the downstream space, there's also been some pretty interesting news flow this month. There are rumblings that Audi is to sign a battery supply agreement with BYD, while BYD also signed a JV agreement with Toyota during the month. There was an interesting study out of Imperial College London debunking some of the most widely held battery myths and showing that on average Britain's EVs emit only 50% of the amount that an ICE vehicle does, including the emission from battery manufacture. Sticking with the UK, And when its government can stop obsessing about Brexit, good luck with that, there's a proposal on the table for all new build homes to have an EV charger and for both residential and commercial large buildings with parking areas to be retrofitted. Such a proposal would have far-reaching positive consequences for EV take-up in the UK. An interesting data point from the US highlights that there's rising demand for second-hand electric vehicles. Coming back to the point we made in our Focus article last month about EV prices versus mass market demand levels. Finally this month, BNEF revised up its global energy storage forecast by 16% by 2040 to 1095 gigawatts. This is compared to last November when it last published comparable forecasts. July was a pretty bad month for EV sales, with global sales down 44% month on month, with a slowdown in each major region. Interestingly, Chinese smartphone output is still growing, however, which is a positive for demand for smaller lithium-ion batteries. In the commodity space, Chinese flake graphite net imports seem to be stabilising, but we highlight the significant bifurcation between low-grade flake graphite import prices and clearly high-grade flake graphite export prices. Spherical graphite prices seem to be remaining relatively stable. This month, we've introduced our monthly battery material ranking, which scores each material on a number of categories, such as supply demand, inventory levels, industry structure, and momentum. It's intended to highlight points of inflection in materials prices and potentially equity performance. Unsurprisingly, nickel is our highest ranking material, followed by rare earths and then vanadium. Lithium chemicals round out the bottom of our ranking. In equity land, August was a pretty horrific month all round, with only our nickel and downstream baskets shrugging off weakness. They even outperformed the S&P Global 1200 Index. That doesn't happen too often. Our two worst performing baskets were the Hard Rock Lithium basket on liquidity concerns 
and our vanadium basket following Largo's less than stellar results. So that's the end of our news roundup for August. If you have any questions on any of the topics I've covered, please contact me or you can find more information on our website at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. Moving on to our interviews now. Today, we're delighted to welcome Adam Panay from Motion. Adam's a consultant with a lot of experience in the automotive supply chain. Welcome, Adam. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Starting off with the questions, can we start with battery chemistry? There's obviously a lot of talk about the new 811 battery chemistry and the apparent rapidity of its adoption. What are you seeing with regards to take-up of 811 chemistry in the market at the moment? From a specifically EV point of view, there's only really one model that we can actually fully confirm has NCM811 in it. And then even within that one model, it's only an available option on the higher battery pack size. And that's from CATL. The battery cells have been provided by CATL. Just to say that as far as we're concerned, then that's not really what we would consider commercial adoption. So it, it is in the market. It's on the passenger car side, probably not even 1% of the market or roughly 1% of the market at present. And really, when you're going to see mass adoption is when this chemistry is qualified by major OEMs who are not going to rush to put a new chemistry onto their platforms before they're certain that it's safe and it's reliable in terms of its cyclability as well. So if you look at what Volkswagen is saying or Northolt who will be supplying them in Europe or BYD or a number of the other major battery cell manufacturers and OEMs as well, they're all talking about 2021, 2022 for the rollout of new vehicles. And one of the things we've been keen to stress about this whole debate as well is that the rate at which a chemistry is adopted in terms of it becoming mass market is relatively slow because you have, even before the chemistry is fully commercialized or put onto platforms, it has to be qualified and so on. That's a year to two year process. But then when it's even qualified, those vehicles come onto the market and they compete in a marketplace where there's other vehicles that are available with earlier chemistry. So NCM 622 or 523 or NCA in the case of Tesla. So you don't just get this sudden switch over to a new battery chemistry immediately. It gets put onto a new vehicle platform. Those vehicles get sold into the market. They represent a relatively small part of the market in their first year. In the second year, you have more models coming on with that chemistry, and the third year more, and et cetera, et cetera. And then, you know, it takes a good four or five years for the chemistry to become a majority or a, a mainstream chemistry. But really, we don't see that process fully beginning for NCM811 until let's say, late 2021 and into 2022. So we've heard a fair amount about strong take-up of 811. Is that then suggestive that the 811 chemistry is primarily being used for consumer devices? In large format, it hasn't been proved, well, hasn't been adopted fully for large format, which is for EV. So I can't really speak to consumer that much because we're really focusing on the EV supply chain. But yeah, we do know that it works at a pilot scale. And in probably a smaller format, it's fine to use, so cylindrical. But for prismatic and pouch, it is still under development as far as we're concerned. With that one caveat of we do know that it's in certain models or a particular model, in fact, for a certain iteration of that model. But that it doesn't really constitute mass market as far as we're concerned in terms of rollout. And one of the things you hear about is to say, you know, people talk about 100% uptick in NCM 811 in the last year. 
that's because the base was very low. I mean, there was just virtually nothing in 2018. So I would just always caution against getting too carried away with talking about the pace of that adoption. These things take time. It's a very sober process. No one's looking to make a mistake from an OEM point of view in terms of adopting the technology too soon, especially when NCM62 works very well, especially for premium vehicles. Just to go off on a slight tangent as well, but the point is as well that the market, as it becomes bigger, the types of vehicles you have on the market are going to become more diverse. So you're going to see premium vehicles in Europe and North America. You're also going to start to see more budget vehicles coming as well over time. And in China specifically as well, LFP is not a finished argument in terms of the chemistry being used. It's interesting you say that because one of my questions was going to be to talk about LFP because it was pretty much written off as a chemistry last year, but it seems to be making a bit of a comeback now. Do you think it's going to be a a material part of, of demand going forward? For two reasons, yes, I do. One is that it's always going to be for at least for the simple future, used predominantly in buses and coaches, and that takes up a, a fair chunk of demand anyway. But what we understand from some of the Chinese automakers and also the battery cell manufacturers there is that LFP is going to be used in budget vehicles, so relatively low-range vehicles, cheap vehicles for the Chinese market that are operating on an urban footprint, let's say. You know, the thing is with LFP, it's like I said, it's relatively cheap to employ. It's very robust and it cycles very well. So it's perfect for the budget end of the market, which is going to be important as the market grows. So, I mean, if you think about it in terms of where these vehicles have been sold and how, in China, you've typically got a market that's made up of vehicles that have been used in an urban setting. And there's a bit of a range between some of the higher-end vehicles, but there is also a budget market there as well. In Europe and North America, it's very much a high-end market at the moment for EVs. I think that will actually change over time. but LFP has lost market share in the last couple of years, but I'd say that's going to come back. But again, that's a relatively undramatic process, I'd frame it that as. So it's going to be for a specific part of the market, which is relatively low-cost, low-range vehicles, primarily for China, I would say. Okay, thanks very much. And just coming back to 811, I mean, well, I think one of the issues with 811 that, that we sort of picked up on is that it's quite a finicky chemistry to produce and a fair amount less stable than other chemistries. And on top of that, it does require battery-grade lithium hydroxide as the raw material. Given all of those issues, do you think it realistically has a future in mass market in electric vehicles? Oh, absolutely, yeah. I just think it's going to take longer than people think to come into the market. So the two issues from a chemistry point of view for NCM811 are the fact that when you thrift the cobalt, you have issues around thermal stability within the cell. And then also you also have an issue around cyclability, so effectively how long and how robust the cell is under charge and discharge. Now, to some extent, both of those issues can be managed within the battery pack. So the software that runs the battery cells, you can effectively limit the charging window, charge and discharging window for the cells so you get around some of that deterioration you get when you strip out the cobalt. And you can manage through cooling systems and also the software that runs this the uh, battery pack, the battery management system, you can get around some of the thermal issues as well. So I, don't, I actually don't really see those as an issue longer term. Some of the software is capturing up with the, the cell, but I think really the key thing to bear in mind is that NCM811 is coming, but it's just the adoption or the mass adoption is just going to be a slower process that I think is often credited. You know, looking forward into the sort of medium to longer term, 
what do you see as the most important battery chemistries for electric vehicles sort of around about the middle of next decade? So, so around about 2025. There's two things to think about here. One is the cathode. So I think that NCM811 will definitely be 2025 onwards will start to really gain market share. So that's going to be a significant battery chemistry. There's also talk about even lower cobalt chemistries, but from a technical standpoint, there's no good reason why over time they can't be adopted. But again, it's a slow, slow process. So you hear about NCMA, which is going to, you know, we're effectively using some uh, aluminum oxide in there. So th- that will further reduce the amount of cobalt you need. So yeah, NCMA 811, or at least low cobalt, chemistries will become predominant from 2025 onwards, I'd say. But the other thing to think about is also the anode. So at the moment, you have a majority just synthetic anode coupled with natural flake graphite. What will happen over time is that natural flake graphite will become predominant in the anode. And that's important mainly because it's going to change the cost profile of the anode because synthetic is much more expensive. You know, our understanding is that cell manufacturers would prefer to use synthetic, but there simply isn't the quantity available over time, especially as demand picks up. So there's that. And then you also you have this uh, emergence of silicon being blended with anodes over time. That's very important. And potential for silicon dominance, the silicon dominant anodes coming into the market from 2025 onwards. But, you know, again, I would say that the rate of adoption is going to be slow, again, mainly because they're going to have to compete on a cost basis with a graphite anode that's you know well-established, the scale built in, supply chains are established. But for, certainly for high-end applications, you'll start to see silicon coming into the market in a bigger way post-2025. And of course, one thing everyone always talks about was this solid state. And again, you know, there's no good reason why solid state can't become an important part of the battery chemistry mix on a, from the anode side. There's absolutely no reason from a technical standpoint, eventually, what you do have an issue around is the supply chain for lithium metal, the fact that lithium metal is very reactive and, and that can create issues. But, you know, certainly from 2030 onwards, you'll start to see solid state in some capacity. But again, it's got to compete on an economic basis. It's got to compete on a cost basis against what will then be a very established lithium-ion battery, regardless of the iteration. So, It'll be high-end applications to start with and then maybe gaining mass scale later. Although, again, I think that's going to take a long time. Okay, thanks very much. So if we move a little bit more on to battery packs and the EVs, I think one of the issues for me is that we continue to hear about how the price of batteries is falling. But if, as seems likely, nickel prices could double or treble from here, what impact is that likely to have on the battery costs for electric vehicles, particularly given this move that we've just been talking about to higher nickel chemistries? There's a couple of things to consider here. One is the raw material costs, so that's including your copper for connectors and so on, and all of your battery minerals, so your nickel, cobalt, manganese, and lithium, of course, and graphite they all make up around 60% of the battery cost. So any significant price increase in those has an impact on the the cost of the cell. That, to some extent, is mitigated by the fact that battery cell manufacturing, particularly for EV, is not a particularly efficient business at the moment. Yield losses range from 20 to even 50% you hear in some cases. So as scale is built out in terms of the battery cell manufacturing, you'll see a reduction in yield losses which will offset some of any or any variation in costs, I'd say. And also the fact that you're going to get greater economies of scale in terms of cell manufacturing as well. So while at the moment 
raw material costs. If that if nickel prices were to double tomorrow, or carbon prices or anything else, that would have a significant impact tomorrow. But as time goes on, raw materials become less important as a part of the overall cost because, like I said, you get scale economies, you get improvements in yield losses and so on. For the listeners, can you just explain in a little bit more detail what yield losses are and, and what causes them? Well, you have yield losses all along the supply chain. You have it at the mining level where you go from the raw material to the chemical, so be it lithium hydroxide carbonate or anything else. Just inefficiencies built into the production process that you don't get 100% return on anything. Any input I, I, I think I mean specifically in the, in the battery manufacturing area. Basically, you have a situation where manufacturers are coming into this industry and also they're scaling at a rate that means that they're not necessarily producing 100% efficiency in the sense that they're producing cells that are off spec and have to be scrapped effectively. I mean, that is, it, it, to be quite blunt about it. So there's a, a point at which you're producing cells that just aren't up to spec and they have to be recycled or scrapped. So that's what I mean by yield losses in this instance. So you and I have spoken before about the importance of the major auto manufacturers moving into the EV space and how that has the opportunity to revolutionize this sector. For me, one of the most important developments is Volkswagen's modular electric drive kit, which it plans to be the base for its entire EV range going forward. How much can standardizing the core of the electric vehicle reduce the cost for OEMs going forward? This is something we've looked at in quite a lot of detail. And, you know, so they're planning, I think it's 50 models off that one platform. When you get to that level of homogeneity in terms of the components you're using, the engineering you're employing, you start to reduce costs pretty dramatically. So we've modeled this and we said, okay, imagine that you get to a 100 kilowatt hour battery cell. Does that get you to cost parity with a purchase cost parity with an internal combustion engine vehicle? Our, our, our answer to that is no. So how do you get there? And a large chunk of the cost reduction for electric vehicles will be this shift to dedicated EV platforms. So one is the modular drive electric drive kit that you mentioned from uh, Volkswagen. GM have their own platform. BMW are adopting one that can take either battery or it can take hybridization and also can take uh, internal combustion engine. So there's quite a few different proposals on offer there. The Volkswagen one is probably the largest scale and the most ambitious one, followed by GM, I would say. I would say that that's going to be responsible for the lion's share of the reduction in cost for EVs over time. If you think about how an EV is made now, with the exclusion of Tesla and a few other pure EV companies, it's effectively a retrofitting of internal combustion engine vehicle with a battery. That's not efficient in terms of performance or cost. So as we move to dedicated EV platforms, you'll see a vehicle that's designed around a battery. And with that, like I said, you get scale, you get homogeneity in terms of components, and also you get a vehicle that's designed to run a battery, so you get performance benefits there as well. Some of the presentations that you might be able to find online from us that we've done publicly shows you the breakdown that we think that that's going to make in terms of the overall cost of the vehicle. And that for us is the key cost reduction, even above and beyond the cell. In Battery Materials Review last month, we discussed the road to mass market for electric vehicles. And quite interesting to see that you've also done a piece on that recently. I think we both concluded that selling price is going to be the crucial factor in the move to mass market. And given that the mass market in the UK currently, as an example, is about 15 to 20,000, 
and the average EV selling price is about thirty to thirty-five thousand. How long do you think it's going to take for EVs to get into the mass market realistically? Based on our modelling, if you take a new battery electric vehicle model, so that excludes plug-in hybrid, if you take a new battery electric model on a dedicated EV platform, then we're saying purchase price parity from 2024. But I just want to throw in a few things to that. There's a consideration in that that OEMs at that point are still making a loss on those vehicles because they're still building scale. So that's an important part, whereas they're making profits on internal combustion engine vehicles. So that's where we see the real pivot in terms of mass market picking up. But it depends what you mean by mass market, because let's say by 2030, most commentators, including ourselves, if you if you do any modeling on the market, you're saying roughly 30% penetration worldwide of electric vehicles. So that's plug-in hybrid and battery electric vehicles by 2030. So do you consider that mass market? I'd say probably yes by that point, because this is a significant part of the market. I think this is where a little bit of the analysis is flawed, because for me, the key issue with electric vehicles is people are not going to go out and buy them unless they can pay a price that's comparable to an ICE vehicle. Mm. So you can be producing as many electric vehicle models as you want, but if you're not selling them for a low enough price, people aren't going to be buying them. That's absolutely right. So, I mean, like I said, we're looking at a purchase price parity. So forget total cost of ownership, which is another way of looking at this. For what is a consumer good, which is different for the heavy duty sector, but Purchase price parity, we're saying 2024, but that's only that. I mean, that's on models produced from 2024. So right. that doesn't account for the entire battery electric race. So we're saying that only really starts to filter through from, from around 2030. So if you're saying we're, like, as we are, 30% penetration roughly from 2030, it's actually slightly higher than that. And then really mass market, you're looking at 2040. So that's when we're saying like 70 plus percent penetration for passenger car and light duty vehicles. This is going to take a long time to filter through, but you know, in that time, you have to develop a supply chain. There's a lot of capital that needs to be spent and uh, uh, and reconfigured in order to make this happen. It's, it's, it's not a small undertaking to convert what has been the mainstay of transportation, consumer transportation for let's say 150 years, over to a completely new technology. So this is a big, big undertaking. Okay, but it's a it's a very positive long term story. Just to sort of round this line out, what do you think are the major risks for EV adoption at the current time? This is something we've been talking about quite a lot. And if I may, I'll just run through the things that are going to drive EV adoption, and then we can talk about what the risks are. So the things that really drive EV adoption are legislation, so that's on both CO2 and then localised pollutants such as nitrous oxide and particulate matter. On both accounts in Europe, which leads the world on all this, basically China, India, all adopt European standards at you know, a later date. Those standards are only going to get tighter. And if you look at where OEMs are with regards to CO2 particularly versus those standards as they stand for 2025, they can't get there without EV. So OEMs are going to have to move to EV or to hydrogen. But really, hydrogen is another set of issues that we can maybe get into another time. But So it's going to be EV for them to meet those, the legislation in terms of emissions. And then you look at what investments being made by OEMs. This is the other driver. So the money is going into this now, and it's going in in different ways. For some, it's Volkswagen, GM, they're going straight for battery electric. For the majority of other OEMs, it has to be said, they're going via plug-in hybrid. They'll eventually get to battery electric. So those are the two drivers of EV adoption. But really, the thing that can hold it up is the other end of the supply chain, which is 
raw materials. So is there going to be enough lithium to go into these batteries? If you look beyond 2025, and as you're probably aware, Matt, I do a lot of work benchmark mineral intelligence on the raw material stuff as well. Even given all the projects that are being proposed, there's not going to be enough lithium. There's going to, there's going to have to be further expansions or ongoing expansions. Same for graphite. Cobalt presents all sorts of issues, as I'm sure your listeners will be aware of. Nickel as well, as you said, you know, there could yeah. potentially be a doubling of the nickel price because there's going to be an unprecedented demand for nickel from, from this se- sector. The only one you don't really have an issue with is manganese. You have the raw materials and then you also have the chemical processing. Now, the majority of that issue is with lithium. All the chemical processing by and large, is in China at the moment, that has to change. The issue is that that part of the market is not very investable. So it's, it's fairly easy to raise finance for a battery cell manufacturer, their brand names, people know who they are. The scale of investment, multiple billions of dollars, is actually easier to raise investment for those than it is for a $20 million CapEx chemical converter in somewhere in Southeast Asia or, or somewhere else or in Australia or even in North America. That part of the market is going to be a real bottleneck. And if that doesn't get resolved, that is a risk for EV adoption because it will drive up costs. And as we've discussed earlier, that's going to push back adoption from a consumer point of view. So at the very far end, the hard work has actually been done. The massive investments going in from battery cell manufacturers, from OEMs, the work from governments, that's all fine. The real issue is with the raw materials and the chemical processing. And if that doesn't get resolved, there is going to be a, a bottleneck. And probably from mid-2025, when you would expect this market to really start to take off. Okay, thanks very much. And just to, to finish off, you speak to a lot of people, both specialists and non-specialists on this space. What's the most important concept that people don't really get, apart from the shortage of raw materials, obviously? Probably we can go back to where we started, which is on this, the rate at which chemistries change. Again, this is if you find one of our presentations online, I'm sure, sure you can. We map this out in terms of the timeline for adoption of a new chemistry. And it's a slow process. You know, when a vehicle comes onto the market, generally speaking, it'll keep the battery pack and the chemistry that it's employed when it comes onto the market until it's taken off the market some three to five years later. And so that creates a natural lag in terms of the adoption of new chemistry. So that's one thing. And yeah, again, this issue around raw materials and also chemical processing of those raw materials I think is the biggest challenge for the market, frankly. Adam Panayi from Rowmotion, thanks very much indeed for your time today. My pleasure. Thank you. Moving back to a company now, and I was delighted to have the opportunity to speak to Keith Phillips, CEO of Piedmont Lithium. Piedmont has a hard rock lithium project strategically positioned in the United States. Keith, welcome to Recharge. Matt, thank you very much for having me. You've recently published uh, PFS level metallurgical test results, byproduct resources, also an updated scoping study for the project incorporating those byproducts. Can I just ask about the byproducts? You've flagged a, a MICA byproduct credit. Given that a lot of the re- recovery problems for the Australian hard rock projects have been due to high MICA contents, how are you going to get around that in an ore body that's obviously pretty rich in MICA? Matt, that's a great question. So I think it's, first of all, important to understand the history in the region, in the tin spodumene belt in North Carolina, where we operate. Uh, so there were two large mines that operated for decades in this region from the 1950s into the 1990s. One of them was the Holman Bean Mine, operated by what was then called FMC Lithium. We have a number of former FMC Lithium people uh, working with us as consultants or executives. And uh, so we have a good understanding of that core body and their business. And we've learned that uh, up to half of the revenue of that business was actually byproduct 
gorgeous feldspar and mica for many, many years. Uh, and they really had no issue at all isolating the mica as well as the gorgeous and feldspar and recovering it and being able to monetize it. We're very optimistic that can be a big business for us. The southeastern U.S. is an industrial heartland of the country. Most of the quartz feldspar and mica mineralization in the country is in the Smoky Mountain area from you know, Georgia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Virginia. There are pure play mica quartz and feldspar mines in that region. Some of them have shut down recently, so we're actually importing material from overseas, which is a high-cost competitor. So we're optimistic we can come back into that market. With respect to the mining and processing and recoveries, I'm not sure it's true that the Australian's biggest issue has been with respect to mica. My, my impression is it's been more of an iron issue. And I would also mention that historically, Almond Beam and FMC never had trouble removing the mica. And our test work doesn't show any issue removing the mica. We think that's largely because we have pure spodumene mineralogy. So we put a pressure release out a few weeks ago about mineralogy. It's something not a lot of the companies talk about. Our impression from anecdotal discussions and evidence is that most other hard rock lithium assets in the world have significant issues with respect to lapidolite or petalite mineralization. And much of the lithium in their resources actually resides in mineralization that is not spodumene. So recovering it is more complicated and the flow sheets aren't necessarily developed to do so. So I think that's actually the biggest issue. Your updated scoping study is for an integrated project producing up to 22,700 tonnes per annum of lithium hydroxide. Can you just talk us through the main assumptions and outcomes from the scoping study? Sure. So the scoping study is an update on a study that was done in September 2018 when we had a smaller resource. So an important priority over the last year has been to prove to the market that this is a bigger resource than we had previously indicated. So we've done a lot of drilling. The current resource is 27.9 million tons at 1.11%. And that supports a 25-year mine life, which is very significant relative to our initial mine life of 13 years. And for a gold or copper project, 13 years might be fine. But when you're producing a specialty chemical product, people are going to want to have offtake agreements for the long term. A longer mine life is important and longer project life is important. So we're very, very happy to have got the 25 years. The operating costs of the, of the project remain very low. We'll talk about that later on. But with a longer mine life, the economics of the project are just that much better. We now have EV over a billion for US, uh, over 2 billion Australian. IRR of 34%. And so we're very pleased with the outcome. And we think it'll only get better from here as we continue to drill more and make it a bigger project. Okay, great. So just to talk a little bit about the costs then, in the scoping study, you publish a cost curve that positions Piedmont as the lowest cost lithium hydroxide producer in the world by 2028. Given that you're going to operate in the US with high labor and power costs, and that you're going to be using conventional technologies, how do you really justify that? I guess I disagree with the premise that the US has high labor costs and power costs, et cetera. Uh, certainly, relative to the other spodumene-rich areas in the world, like Western Australia or Northern Canada, we actually think we'll have meaningfully lower labor costs and far higher labor productivity. Importantly, we also won't require labor camps. Our project is, we have about 3 million people living within a 30-mile radius. Uh, we're 30 miles west of Charlotte, North Carolina, which is a large city. So we actually think we'll, our labor costs will be very low relative to those. 
power costs are also very, very low relative to Western Australia, not as low as Quebec, but very low on a global basis. The natural gas costs, diesel, are far lower than both of those environments, et cetera. Transport costs are very important in this business. We think our transport costs will be a fraction of those of most of the Australian or Canadian projects. So a project, uh, a project like Kidden, for example, I think they're talking about a 500-kilometer uh, trucking of spodumene to their ultimate chemical plant in Damascus, I think, has a total of 800 kilometers between rail and truck. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But in our case, we have a 20-mile haul as dramatically lower cost. Uh, you're moving a lot of material, 6% concentrate, a uh, far shorter distance. So there's a big cost saving there. And then importantly, we're operating on private land in North Carolina, so we have no government royalties. Uh, WA obviously has a 5% mining royalty. 5% is a lot, so ours is zero, uh, and we have very low income taxes. Another benefit of our project is you know, the byproducts do have a significant impact on our costs. Our current model shows around $100 a ton of byproduct credit on our spot to be concentrate costs. You use about seven tons of concentrate to make a ton of lithium hydroxide, so that's roughly $700 a ton of cost savings, uh, essentially, on the lithium hydroxide front. So that's a very big advantage relative to the projects that don't have a byproduct opportunity. Okay, great. Thanks very much. For the first few years of the project, you're producing and exporting concentrate product. Where is likely to be your main market for that product? And also the point that spodumene markets are currently oversupplied. So is the spodumene concentrate a strategy you're committed to, or could you think about going fully integrated straight away? Uh, well, it's a great question. We designed our two-phase strategy largely from a kind of financing perspective. Technically, it's easier to get a mining concentrate plant up and running, arguably, than a battery plant. We can do it more quickly. At the time, we first thought that through the spodumene markets were stronger. So it's, today, it's something we're rethinking on many levels. Number one, we're finding demand for battery-grade hydroxide is growing dramatically. We've been in conversations with a number of parties around the world, in Europe, in you know, all over Asia, and in the U.S., and it's clear that uh, as high nickel cathodes increase in market share and more lithium hydroxide is desired, there's going to be dramatic growth in demand for hydroxide, and it's going to happen soon. We actually think 2023 is a critical year. So we're spending a lot of time thinking now about how to accelerate our chemical plant plans. That may, in fact, obviate the need to be a spodumene-concentrated seller in the interim. So I would say we're, you know, we remain flexible. Uh, currently, all the, concentrate, all the conversion of concentrate in the world occurs in China. So that would be the market we would ship to. We've had advanced conversations with a couple of very prominent converters over there. And you know, we think there will be strong demand, although there currently is uh, obviously a difficult spodumene market. So one thing we've, we've thought about, I mean, with conversations we've had with important cathode and battery supply chain players around the world, it's clear that demand for hydroxide is growing dramatically. It's growing fast. Uh, so we're spending a lot of time thinking about advancing the chemical plant, perhaps a year or so. And really, that affirms our strategy that battery-grade hydroxide is kind of the right future for us. It's the right place for us to be with our high-grade, low-cost spodumene-based ore body. And uh, we think the demand will be you know, very significant in near term. And you know, we're going to move toward that as quickly as we can. Okay, brilliant. Thanks very much. So one of the questions that comes up quite regularly with your project is the land package. 
What's the nature of your arrangements with the current landowners? And what are the prospects of further increasing the scale of the project through further land acquisitions? So we control over 2,200 acres today, which we think is probably the largest land package anyone's ever assembled on this belt. It's very significant. Some of the land we own, but most is under long-term leases with options to purchase over the next several years. So we, uh, part of our capital and our mine and concentrate plan is, is really executing the land options down the road. So the land package we have today supports our 27.9 million ton resource. Uh, there's a, a lot of land that we haven't drilled yet that we, we're looking hard at now. I think there's great prospectivity on some of the other properties. And importantly, we're in contact with a number of other landowners in the area. You know, they all know we're there. We're, uh, anyone that has a large property, uh, we're certainly in touch with. We think the project can get a lot bigger. You know, if you look at the belt, it's about, about 40 kilometers long, a couple kilometers wide at its widest point where we are. Over 95% of the holes we've drilled on the belt itself have encountered high-grade mineralization. So, you know, put simply, the more land we have on the belt, the more likely it is we'll have a meaningfully bigger project. And I think it can get dramatically bigger if we can make progress in the land front. So that, that continues to be an important part of our strategy. Now, we sort of alluded to a little bit before, but obviously the deposit is strategically based in the continental U.S., can you give us any insights into the potential development of the battery intermediates industry in the US? Are you having conversations about the development of an integrated battery industry or are you aware of such conversations? Yeah, you know, we've always said we have the world's best located lithium project. And initially we really thought of that as a from a cost perspective, because being in North Carolina is very low cost, the infrastructure is exceptional. We have low cost labor and power, et cetera. But increasingly, we think about it as a strategic factor. So the U.S. is obviously a very large industrial economy, with a huge automotive business. We're in the heart of what is termed auto alley. If you think about going from Detroit south to southeastern U.S., where most of the growth is, most of the transplants are, are growing in places like Alabama, Georgia, and Kentucky, and Tennessee, North Carolina, et cetera. And we're right in the heart of that region. So and the battery supply chain is developing here. Remember, the number one, the, the, the world's biggest Battery plant is in the U.S. Tesla's uh, Gigafactory in Nevada. LG currently produces batteries in Michigan. There are rumors of them developing a second plant somewhere in the southeastern U.S. SK Innovation commenced construction a few months ago on what would be a very large battery plant uh, near Atlanta in Georgia, about a three-hour drive from our doorstep. Daimler and others are uh, have battery plants under consideration. And importantly, you know, as we've talked to some of those people and others, and as we've talked to OEMs who are producing cars in the U.S., it's become increasingly clear that the OEMs in particular want to have supply chain be localized. So if they're going to produce cars in Tennessee or, or Alabama, they want to get their batteries nearby. They would like for their battery suppliers to get a cathode nearby. Obviously, the cathode suppliers would like to have a ready lithium supply, which we can offer. And, and so can Albemarle and Limet, who are producing lithium hydroxide currently in North Carolina. I don't suspect this will be some grand national strategy that leads the U.S. into kind of battery supply chain. I think it'll be organic. It's happening uh, based on the conversations uh, we're having. We have absolutely no question about it. I think the part of it that's most interesting to us is uh, I do think cathode capacity will come to the U.S. in scale. And I think the most logical place to put that cathode capacity is in North Carolina, very close to the 
to existing hydroxide businesses that Albemarle and Live have into our, into our project as well. Shipping hydroxide, hydroxide doesn't have as long a shelf life as some other products do. Uh, the more you ship it, the more you handle it, the more risk there is associated with it from a moisture perspective, et cetera. Uh, so having all that be kind of close to the hydroxide plan makes a lot of sense. I don't have any question that that will happen. I think it will happen in the reasonably near future. Great. So what sort of timetable are you targeting for production? You recently completed the financing, which should uh, take you through to DFS. And I guess the other question is, how are you finding the project financing environment at the moment from discussions you've been having? Yeah, we were very happy to complete the financing in July. We were also very pleased to bring Fidelity in alongside Australian Super as a new big shareholder. So between the two of them, they own 22% of our stock now, which is great. We do currently have $15 million US cash, roughly. We will not need to come to the market in this current environment at all. Certainly, the project financing environment is challenging for those that are looking to go into production immediately. We're focused right now on really advancing the chemical plant aspect of our strategy, bringing that forward, and uh, in doing so, engaging in conversations with any number of strategic parties, be they OEMs, battery plants, cathode producers, et cetera, private equity groups, et cetera. There's a whole raft of people who are interested in a project like ours. And I think ultimately, we will involve one or more parties like that, whether it's in an off-take capacity or a strategic capacity, to help finance our projects. And I think at the right time, uh, financing the project will be, uh, just given the strategic nature of it and the low-cost nature of it, that will be very doable. Okay, great. A sort of question I tend to ask all of my interviewees, what differentiates your project and why do you feel that investors should fund it over and above any other projects that might be existing out there? Well, there are a lot of lithium projects out there and some of them, are, I think, are very attractive. I think what differentiates us is we are the only, we have the only American spodumene-based hydroxide business. There are no others. There are several very interesting spodumene projects in Western Australia and Canada and, and elsewhere. Uh, there are some really interesting carbonate projects in, in Argentina. We have the only American hydroxide project. Uh, so that's very attractive strategically. We're located in the southeastern United States, which is the best part of this country to be in from an industrial perspective. It's very fast growing. The regulatory environment is constructive. The infrastructure is fantastic, et cetera. Our business uh, is entirely ex-China. So while there may be a year or two where we sell spodumene to the Chinese converters, if that's sensible, basically our battery-grade hydroxide business will be an American business and totally ex-China, which is important from a cost perspective and also a strategic perspective. So we think the asset is it's an exceptionally low-cost business given our location. It's highly strategic. Again, it's American and it's the only one. So the, there are other projects in the U.S., but they're not spodumene-based. And they're not, in the first instance at least, uh, looking to the hydroxide market, they're more carbonate-oriented. So we think the upside is dramatic, and we think the execution risk is very low, given where we are. So we think it's very attractive. Okay. Keith Phillips, thanks very much for your time today. Good. Thank you, Matt. So that brings us to the end of our roundup for September. You can get more detail on any of the topics I've discussed in the latest issue of Battery Materials Review, which you can find at www.batterymaterialsreview.com. I'll be back next month. I'm Matt Fernley, editor of Battery Materials Review, and this has been Recharge, 
Thanks for listening.